from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Louisville, Colorado. On this week's edition, Amory Lovins on DOE and the future of the grid, Cargill and the art of employee engagement, how cities are getting to 100% renewable energy, and the race to become the world's largest B Corp. We're rocking in the Rockies this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's September 8th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. And joining me is our regular Jersey girl, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. How are you? You know, I'm okay. It's, um, you know, it's that, I know, exactly. It's that week of the year that, I mean, it's been a long time since either of us has been in school and, you know, neither of us has kids in school. And so I don't know why, but this week just feels like it all begins after, you know, a fairly, well, actually way too busy August. But all of a sudden, still, even despite the craziness, as soon as the clock strikes Labor Day, it's got a whole different feeling. You, you have that too? I do. It's just crazy. If you, it goes back to, right, your, your habits that you, that you learn when you're a child. And, and I know the school, the school year here doesn't make any sense, like the, the, the structure of it anymore, you know, based on there's no harvest. I mean, here in New Jersey, here in Midland Park, New Jersey, there's no harvest, right? That's the reason it was picked. But yes, it's, it's, it sort of bends your mind in a different way. Um, you know, but I'm in here. I'm in here in New Jersey. Why are you in Louisville, Colorado? Already, you're on the road. Already, yeah. Just a few hours after uh, Labor Day ended, I was in the airport. Um, well, so September is one of three months of the year, along with January and May, that we convene meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network. That's our membership-based peer-to-peer learning forum for big company sustainability executives. Um, and we, each of those months, January, May, and September, we have three meetings on consecutive weeks. Uh, and as a member, we got about 80-some members, and we only want about 20 or so at a meeting to keep the groups you know, small. Um, so at any given month, you pick as a member which of those meetings you go to. So this week, it's at Louisville, Colorado at the uh, – home office of Danone Wave, and we'll talk a little bit later about what that is. Uh, and next week, we'll be in Atlanta at the headquarters of Cox Enterprises, another company a lot of people don't yet know, but we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, the following week is is our big Verge conference in, in Santa Clara, and then the week after that, we'll be in the Twin Cities in uh, St. Paul, actually, at the headquarters of Ecolab. So... And that's just September, uh, but it's going to be busy. And but meanwhile, uh, this week, Danone Wave. Now, do you know who Danone Wave is? I do know who Danone Wave is. Um, it's a pretty I new company. I don't think I realized they were in Colorado, though. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah. yeah. So what happened was is that uh, Danone, which is a big French company, and the the North American dairy business merged with White Wave, the company that makes silk soy and and has rice and milk. And they created one of the top 15 U.S. food and beverage companies, uh, as well as the number one dairy business, if you don't count cheese. Uh, it was a, the new thing is called Danone Wave, and it's here at the at, at what had been White Wave's headquarters here in Colorado. 
And um, it's, uh, as has one other claim to fame that I'm going to talk about later in the show, but um, on April 12th this year, the day that the acquisition of White Wave was approved, the new enterprise received its status as a public benefit corporation, and it's the largest company in the U.S. to have that distinction. And there may be going to become the also the largest B Corp. So do you, do you know the difference between? I am embarrassed to say I don't know the difference, and I think you need to explain me. <laughs> I think I explain do. Explain me. Explain me. I think... Well, uh, this is most people don't understand this, and they and a lot of people conflate the two. So, a benefit corporation is a company that has a, a purpose beyond just shareholder return. In other words, it can consider uh, social impact or the environment as part of its mandate. And so, right now, uh, most companies have the fiduciary responsibility if they're not maximizing shareholder return from a financial point of view. Um, and you know, wasting money on environmental protection or or you know diversity or things, they they actually can be sued by shareholders, and so this is a new designation. Now that's the legal designation. There's also this thing called the B Corp, which is a voluntary uh, designation run by uh, an organization called B Lab, which is uh, kind of a certification as a as a socially responsible business, and B Corp is. There's relatively few of them. They're mostly smaller. I mean, there's some hundreds, but they're mostly smaller companies. And uh, Danone Wave, uh, if they pursue this, will become the biggest of those. Patagonia, I think, right now is the biggest. And they're very people lot of often conflate the two. Say, oh, you're a B Corp. That means you're a you know public benefit. Anyway, they they get them mixed up. So they're different things. With similar aims, there's no legal status called B Corp. The legal status is called, and it differs in every state or jurisdiction, called the Public Benefit Corporation. See, I am still in school. Thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I, thank you. Thank nice. you very much. Yeah, so that's it. So we're going to talk uh, a little bit later uh, about that uh, with the, one of the executives at Danone Wave. And then there's just so much other stuff going on. I mean, I, I don't know how it was for you, uh, but the, this over Labor Day weekend in, in California and, and here in Colorado, I'm told as well, the combination of the heat and the smoke from fires in Oregon, Washington, Montana, the, the Sierra Nevada and California, um, British Columbia, if I didn't say that yet, uh, and not to mention what's going on in Georgia, and that's just in the U.S., it's kind of freaky, and that's before we get to Harvey and and the newest sweetheart Irma, that's storming up the eastern seaboard or threatening to. So it's just uh, really interesting. We've gotten the, the new school year. Heather is off to a raucous start. Well, here actually, let me just share one quick thing from my weekend, and and it was quite uh, stormy for most of the weekend here in New Jersey, but quite a lovely day on um, Monday. Uh, I did get a chance to go out hiking, and here I am in, in lovely New Jersey, and I was about three three miles into my hike up in the, the northern state forest here, and um, had a quite an interesting encounter. <laughs> I was looking for deer, but I ended up finding um, a couple of bears. <laughs> what? Yeah, and they weren't too far away. They were pretty, about 50 feet away, so um, it reminded me that the bear call, I don't know if you know this, but here in New Jersey, it's a, it's a big debate. I mean, we have regularly have bears kind of wander down into the residential areas here, um, 
this is the closest I've ever come to two huge adult bears, but uh, wait, wait, you're, you're you're sure that wasn't Chris Christie? It wasn't Chris Christie. No, okay, I swear. just, just checking. <laughs> Although just there checking. could be a meme on that one, <laughs> but anyway, it just um, it reminded me of just yeah, I mean, just how um, how much we're encroaching on the territory of of the animals here in places like New Jersey. I mean, it's just really the deer. I mean, are ridiculous. I I, I don't even. I don't bother planting anything in my yard right now without studying whether it's deer. Resistant. Wait, wait, don't, don't move on to deer. I want to hear about the bear. So what happened? <laughs> you saw these, these, this mama and baby. It wasn't a mama and baby. I think it was a male and female. Oh, okay. Um, and I think they're getting ready for hibernation. But uh, but basically, they just one of them storms sort of storm looked at us and stormed by. The second um, stood his ground and and kind of stared me down for a little bit. Uh, my husband, of course, grabbed the the camera. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, can I run faster than my husband? Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, the thing that was really fascinating to be quite honest was, uh, finally he, the large one did move off and they rejoined that the two were, were clearly there. They were just into looking for food, but they stood on their hind legs and were wrestling and growling at each other. It was just crazy. It was a, quite an amazing experience. I've never had anything like that happen to me before, you know, while hiking, we hike fairly often uh, in this forest too. And it was just uh, quite a, an extraordinary experience. I, I felt just, I, I actually got scared later <laughs> um, after they were gone. And, and I realized that that was not a, probably not a very good situation to be in. We had nothing with us, but um, anyway, it was just quite amazing. Um, and well, I, it sounds like you kind of walked into a, a, a bear spat, a marital spat or something going yeah, on. and barely made it out. Barely made it out. Well, I'm glad you did. And um, let's, instead uh, everybody has bared our little chit-chat, let's move on to the week in review. So I think that we're going to start with one of my stories. No, <laughs> no offense. I like my story. No, uh, but but one of the things I, I've been doing over the past few weeks is prepping for the Verge conference that you mentioned. And um, one of the stories I decided to tackle was cities aspiring to be 100% renewable. Um, and what I was trying to figure out, number one, is whether this was a, a reasonable, a reasonable goal, right? Is this, is this something that, that, a city really has the right to aspire to. Um, and then if so, you know, what, what do these cities have in common? The ones that are making it, that are moving towards this goal, um, you know, what do they have in common? So that, that's one of the stories we'd love to feature. Um, I hope you read my story, Joel. Obviously. Yeah. And you, and I was pleased that you had mentioned Greensburg, Kansas, which I wrote about in my book as sort of a interesting story of, of what happens when a town basically goes away and the community comes together to rebuild and what, what do they want, you know, in, in this red state and how did they think about building the town and, and, and how they ended up build, without necessarily calling it a sustainable city actually ended up doing that. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that story. Uh, but uh, you mentioned a bunch of uh, smaller towns like Greensburg, Kansas and Aspen, Colorado, Burlington, Vermont, Kodiak Island, Alaska, Rockport, Missouri. But aren't there a bunch of bigger cities? Cities that are also yeah. on this path. Yeah, there are. Atlanta's just declared. Orlando has just declared. Um, in fact, I was I, I, the Sierra Club has a great resource, and I, I've linked to it in the story. Um, there were, and there, I'll make a distinction here. There were close to forty that have actually declared a goal. 
right? Um, that that have said that we're shooting for 2025, we're shooting for 20, you know, 2030, and so forth. Um, and there are about another hundred that are aspiring to commitment. <laughs> so they're committed to committing, <laughs> if you will. Um, and uh, the largest of the cities that that has declared this is San Diego. They've made a, a large commitment, and they're they're actually moving towards it. So Atlanta just declared they're they're just starting the process. Um, but yeah, there's there's San Francisco, of course, being among the early. I think the or actually I think the earliest uh, to really say, hey, you know what? Let's do this and and let's aspire to this. So so this piece is uh, headlined: cities that are aspiring to 100% renewables share this in common. What what do what do they have in common? Well, so for sure, strong leadership. Um, it it really takes guts to to be this ambitious because sometimes the goal may be at at odds with a county or even the neighboring community. So when you declare this, um, you, you, you've got to be ready to fight for it. Um, data is important, right? Because it's still remains such a big gap. I was, I was, as I was researching this, I was surprised to, to see that a number of the larger cities that are heading towards this haven't actually offered a specific progress report in several years. Um, which makes me think it's tough to pinpoint, right? So it's just hard to collect the data. Um, you have to you have to have a good partnership with the utility um, if you if you don't own your own utility, right? You have to be able to get the information somewhere and to understand what's working, what's not working, what, where is it working, right? Are there certain uh, communities, certain socioeconomic factors that are getting in the way? When when you look at the smaller towns, the other big common denominator is economics, right? So for Georgetown, Texas, that that was the uh, the town that was featured in the in the Al Gore in the new Al Gore movie. They went with solar and wind because it was the most cost-effective option available to them. In Texas, uh, they have two big PPAs, one's for solar, one's for wind. They kind of balance them as they need to when you know, they complement each other. Lancaster, California explicitly uh, said this is about creating new jobs. So they, the, the mayor there set, and the, the council set it up as a as a, a jobs engine, right? We're going to do this because of these things. So they 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 kind of set it up that way, and they they're the the net net zero community, right? That that's the way they're talking about it. Yeah, they have uh, Mayor Rex Paris, who's been there since two thousand eight, has been just sort of a leading light in a way that you just wouldn't expect, particularly because Lancaster is sort of out in the middle of of, of nowhere. Right, right. There's a, an organization called the Renewables One Hundred Policy Institute, and they follow the motivations very closely. Um, and here's the founding director, Diane Moss, with some more insight. Some of the top things that they have in common is the ability to, the, the legal right to procure their own energy. And they have strong leadership. And that takes both at the top level and at the grassroots level, often they work together. It's not always both in one city, but there's got to be either a strong bottom up with a with a willing top leadership or a strong top-down leadership like what we see in Lancaster um, with a willing community <laughs> but they've got to be willing to go together and to, 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 to make to allow for the change there is a willingness to uh, cut red tape and streamline um, and that's something that we see often. More often than not, sometimes 
cities back their way into a 100% renewable procurement. Sometimes it's easy. You know, they're Vancouver. They're awash in hydropower. <laughs> you know, that's, that it's easier to do that. But most of them make a conscious commitment. Um, so they set a goal. Not all of them. I don't know if Georgetown set a goal or if they saw that they were arriving there and then, you know, declared, declared the victory. Um, but many of them will declare a goal and then create some kind of an implementation plan. I think one of the reasons that cities are getting uh, you know, a little bit slow to report is that probably that in that 80-20 rule, that last 20% is really of getting the, the solar and uh, finding those facilities or those organizations or those places, you know, getting them into the grid and everything else. It's got to be hard. And, and I, I think every city is going to be facing that. But I just wonder, as you looked at, at these cities and all these do you think these claims are all they're cracked up to be? And where can cities have the most impact? Yeah, so um, clearly there has been a flood of commitments, right? In the days and the weeks after President Trump announced he was going to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement, there was a flood of commitments by mayors, cities, um, some states that, that have all pledged to combat climate change, right? They're saying, okay, the federal government won't do this. We're going to do this ourselves. And, and, you know, as I was, again, as I was researching this, some experts say, you know what? Setting that goal is a really important North Star. Um, but as I mentioned before, it's not for the faint of heart. And um, there may be other things that, there are other places that you really should be starting, right? So, for example, energy efficiency, uh, buildings, you know, why are you, are you, have, have you looked at the buildings and, and the way of, of cutting power uses out of the buildings at, at a city level? So both for the municipal buildings, are you encouraging things on the commercial side? So the goal is important. We don't know what progress is being made, except for places like Georgetown, Texas, which have actually have made it. They're, they're, they're in place. Their power is 100% renewable. They can make that, that claim. But only five cities have actually gotten there or said they've gotten there. And there's a lot of different reasons why. And for some more perspective, I, I talked to Sam Brooks, the former director for the Energy Division in Washington, D.C. And now he's a managing director of clean energy consulting firm Clear Rock. And um, here's what he has to say. The, the priorities for a city should be building energy efficiency and distributed local generation. Um, and you know those are those are places where cities are uniquely capable of making a huge impact, and they're places where we can track performance and see how they're doing. Um, and I you know I wish we were spending a, a lot more time discussing how cities are doing, you know, tracking towards uh, efficiency goals and and local distributed generation goals because uh, because those are the places where cities can make an impact. So 100% renewables is is relying on on a million factors um, and about, you know, close to near a million of those factors are outside of the control of the city. Um, and so it's a, it's a great, it's a great goal, but those, you know, there's just a ton of factors that, that come into play that where cities just don't, don't really have a lever. Climate is a unique endeavor where, you know, the, the political pain is never obvious because the, the, you know, the, the problem isn't always so obvious. It's long-term and nebulous. Um, and that's, what's, what's unique and difficult, but also why it's so freaking important to get it right. Uh, but that's what's unique about it is we, it's hard. We very rarely have crisis moments uh, with climate because 
Um, usually when we do, we're actually having to fight the other side to even get them to agree that this is a problem. You never have that with crime or transit. You know, everybody wants more efficient transit. Everybody wants, you know, lower crime. We usually just, you know, argue about how to get there. Climate's not like that. You know, we've, we've got a governor of Maryland who, you know, barely even thinks that, you know, global warming is a real thing. Um, so, you know, that can, that can be difficult. And a lot of, a lot of urban jurisdictions face that where, you know, one count, one county has got a very progressive, you know, and, and might want to do the right thing. And instead of figuring out with the other county how to get the data and how to build a better program, you know, the other county leader, you know, thinks that it's a Chinese hoax. Uh, so you're fighting this kind of multi-front battle. Um, and I think that makes it difficult. Everybody, I think, is swimming in the right direction. I think everybody's committed to this stuff. But I do think it's okay if we're, you know, as a, you know, community of folks that, you know, that, that think that this is, you know, one of the biggest uh, challenges of our generation to ask hard questions. Um, to say, you know, what the heck's going on? Why, why aren't we moving in that direction that we said we were going to move five years ago? You know, everybody that was serious about, you know, diving into these plans and we kind of know what they're really about and what they're not. Resilience is kind of it. That is what we're talking about. It also hits all those other things that are important to politicians. You want local jobs? Don't buy recs. Don't buy offsite power. Create local forms of generation, create a local energy efficiency workforce. Those are local jobs. That's local tax revenue. That's, you know, that's helping your, you know, citizens of your city. That's helping low-income folks pay their utility bills. Um, and that's, you know, that I think is what resilience is about too. I just, um, you, you see, you see that word less and less, which I think is a bummer, but, I, but I don't, I don't think we've lost it. And I think, you know, if it sticks around and, you know, maybe, maybe it, maybe somebody comes up with some synonym and that could be the word of 2018. Cause I think, uh, you know, I, I think it does capture what we, what we want to do. So let's move over to another story that you wrote, uh, you overachiever, you, uh, on how the factory of the future saves energy. So uh, on one hand, you would think that, of course, any new factory, any factory of the future is going to be more efficient than the one before that. So what's really going on here? So this story fascinated me because I'm a, an Internet of Things enthusiast geek, right? So I, but what I wanted to explore was how sensors and, and, and other metering equipment throughout a factory could affect its sustainability profile, right? So we know that uh, companies are doing this for operational reasons, right? They need to be more efficient. They need to have their production lines operating on the most optimal schedules. But I was also very happy to, to hear that this can save energy, right? There's a very clear ways to save energy. You can, for example, uh, you are able to run the production line at certain hours of the night uh, against the demand, the demand response cycles of your local utility. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, simple one. But there's also a lot to be said on the maintenance, right? So one of the companies that uh, was was testing this out, Cisco was was working on this for one of the contract manufacturers in in China, and uh, they noticed that one of the testing chambers was much more energy efficient than the others. So they did a couple things. Number one is that they decided to prioritize using that chamber over the others, right? But they also were able to go and look at the at the chambers, the heat chambers, and say, okay, what's wrong here? What, what, what's, what's wrong with the equipment? Um, is there something that should be tuned on this equipment? And, and let's fix it. So, I mean, it's, 
the great thing is that it come it starts with the operational argument, which is always wonderful for the sustainability team, right? If they have the buy-in from the manager, from the plant manager, from the division manager and so forth, but you can work over into the energy consumption or other things, you know, in the future, like water, then you can start measuring against that and start cutting energy, start cutting the greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with a, uh, a particular production cycle. You know, Toyota has uh, is actually really put this as part of their 2050 goals. Their pledge is to completely eliminate the greenhouse gas emissions related to production centers. So you can imagine that's a pretty aggressive goal, and they need to instrument everything very carefully in order to get there. So you talk about this as the factory of the future, but it sounds like it's already here. Is this is this something that is going to be just uh, a few good, you know, pilot kinds of things, or is this pretty much how factories are going to be running in two, five, or ten years? So I'm I'm I do feel like it is starting to be here today. You have some some very forward thinking companies, the big ones that are that are working on this. The GEs of the world, right? So this is a big, this is part of their whole big predix, um, predictive manufacturing, predictive maintenance, etc. General Electric is, is working very closely on this concept of the industrial internet. Cisco, big, big theme for them. And, and many of the big companies, right? Intel has been doing this for years. So yeah, the thing that, that's hap- this different, is changing a little bit, is it's becoming more of the realm of a smaller organization um, through companies like OSI Soft, which is is making this this equipment more um, sort of co- I wouldn't say commonplace, but more possible, right at the at the at the midsize levels and so forth. But you know, I I do f- firmly believe that it will be more so more widespread in the eh, maybe not five years time frame because right it takes a long time to overturn the equipment in in a, in a plant. But 10 years, absolutely. I, and I do feel like it's a theme that's being explored right now. I do, you know, one final point I would like to make, I, I kind of always already alluded to a little bit before, but um, these, these projects don't, don't necessarily, you know, start with the efficient, the sustainability efficiency metrics, right? They start with, with an operational rationale. Um, and I spoke with David Mount, the managing member of G, uh, G2VP. It's the Green Tech Growth Fund being spun out of Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. He's a long-time the, the, investor. The, the big in this. and infamous uh, venture yeah, capital Yeah, firm. yeah, yeah, right. right? So they've, they've actually, they're spinning out a Green Tech Growth Fund, right? They're, they're specifically, I like that, that he's associated with, with, with that part of it, but um, he's a long-time investor in this space, not, in, not necessarily in the green mindset. Um, he, he does have an investment in the, the software company I just mentioned, OSI Soft, which is developing the glue for these kinds of systems. Um, and he had this to say about the investment rationale. The sustainability metrics that get talked about are typically not what an organization is leading with. They are typically leading with um, some of those efficiency metrics like we talked about. But the big customers who want to move on this fastest are talking about new revenue models. And and then the efficiency metrics come later, typically. So the, the big customers that are thinking, all right, we're going to deliver a connected device, or we are going to add telemetry to our manufacturing line um, so that we can run more, more efficiently and effectively, are, are generally talking about new, new modes of charging for their product, new products that they can create, new methods of manufacturing so that they can do just-in-time manufacturing as opposed to just manufacture a bunch of stuff and then keep it in inventory. 
then um, in aggregate, there are a couple of a couple of metrics that that a sustainability officer will think about and report on. And th there are there are two of those principally. The first one is the efficiency of the manufacturing process, the operational efficiency of, of the manufacturing process. So how efficiently the line is running, how much rework has to get done on a line, how much energy, how energy intensive or water intensive a, a manufacturing process is. And those metrics will come out of the these IoT projects. And they'll come out of data that's being collected in an OSI soft system, or they'll come out of data that's being collected by distributed networks of sensors. And then um, typically what you find, the, the metrics that are quoted are you can you can find 15 to 20% energy savings in these processes just as, as low-hanging fruit. Uh, and that's what OSI soft has seen over the life of its work with its customers and and generally pretty consistently, which is which means big numbers. Um, the second is around inventory and inventory management and productivity. One of the big, one of the big pushes around the future of manufacturing um, and, and IoT capable manufacturing is a concept of more just-in-time delivery and easier, faster customizations of, of product to, to be able to deliver exactly what the customer wants when the customer wants it. Um, whether that is being done in machining environments where you are, instead of making 10,000 units of something, you do lower production runs um, and then do them more frequently. Or that is eventually being done in a, an additive manufacturing environment where you're making exactly the part that you want, exactly when you want it on a network of distributed machines that are, that are built by 3D printing companies or, or companies that are effectively 3D printing companies, additive manufacturing companies, um, exactly when you want them, where you want them. So you don't have uh, warehouses full of stuff distributed around the world just waiting to be ordered. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. So, Joel, you had a very long piece this week about an employee event at Cargill. I read the whole piece end to end. I kept my attention the whole time, and I, I compliment you on that uh, because I, I had no idea what it was about. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, what motivated? Why did you choose to write about this? And why did you do so in depth? Well, you weren't the only overachiever this week. Yeah, I did this piece as like 3,200 words, which is, you know, just for the uninitiated, probably three times longer than our typical piece on GreenBiz. But it was really, really fascinating for a few reasons. First of all, the topic, employee engagement, is one that uh, – Almost every company of any size experiences in terms of how do you get buy-in on sustainability outside the sustainability department, uh, whether sustainability is being driven at the top, whether it's a bottom-up thing, or sometimes often the case, the middle out, where so you've got a sustainability department in the middle that's trying to push it up to the top and also down the rank and file. Whatever the model, just getting buy-in is a challenge, and I, and I see that for for even companies like Nike, I was up there a number of years ago, and you know the, this beautiful athletic, you know, this facility in Beaverton, Oregon, and you see the mountains, and people are out playing. Employees are out swimming and playing soccer and basketball all day because they test the equipment, and it's just this amazing. Average age is in the you know probably in the high twenties, and they even as committed as they are, you know, struggle as do all companies with keeping 
uh, sustainability front and center. So Cargill. Cargill is this uh, giant food and ag company. It's the largest private corporation in the United States. So that was interesting. Uh, and, they, and they had just gone through a reorg and, and they were trying to bring sustainability more into the equation. They're a historically quiet or if not secretive company. And so that was interesting why all of a sudden they, they, they sort of started going bigger on sustainability. And, and largely because I got access. Um, they gave me, uh, through Jill Coling, their sustainability lead for this, this relatively new division called Cargill Protein, which is, you know, the turkey and beef and a bunch of different um, poultry and, and eggs and, and a bunch of different uh, businesses that have been rolled up under one roof. And as they went through this reorganization to, that created Cargill Protein, they decided, well, how do we get, how do we make sustainability part of this? We know it should be, and and food uh, sustainability with the food and ag is just you can't separate them. And so they decided to hold a sustainability summit. So you actually, I mean, you kind of gave some of the internal motivations. Were there, were there also external ones like customers and stakeholders or they're going through this reorg? Were there, was there also external pressure to have this event now? Well, there wasn't pressure to have the event, but they certainly saw that the, that customers are, are, are interested in this. And I'm talking about customers. For them, it's restaurants, supermarkets, uh, packaged goods manufacturers to, to which Cargill sells the, the the raw materials, grains, or in this case, uh, meat and protein. But they also have a bunch of, of consumer brands of fresh frozen cooked meats and sauces and soups and other things. And and in all cases, there, there's just growing interest in, in, in the provenance of food. Where did it come from? What's the story? What do we know about it? Did it have uh, pesticides or antibiotics? Or, uh, you know, how, how were the animals treated? And, and so many other issues. So this was a, a lot of why they wanted, they knew they needed to be thinking about this more and why uh, they decided to hold this one-day sustainability summit uh, for employees, uh, select employees, and, and across the, that company. And and to try to elevate it, and uh, that's the story that I told is 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 what happened and what went on during this day. So, who was there, and what was expected of, of them? Well, they uh, sort of tried to get a cross section, and uh, Jill Colling was uh, it was interesting. She said, "You know, I, I didn't know who's going to come. I was afraid we were going to have just like fifteen people." And 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 but little by little, people started showing up, or, or at least by email, saying, "Hey, wait, I, I should I should be there. I should have gotten an invitation, and I wasn't, or I was supposed to be invited. They weren't supposed to be invited. They just wanted to be." And so they said, "Please add me to the list." And in the end, she got forty people, which is more than than uh, she expected. And it was a little bit of everybody, from her boss, who was the uh, uh, Chuck Gitkin, we'll hear from in a few minutes, the chief marketing officer at Cargill Protein, to people in supply chain and sales. And and R and D and uh, just a whole range of just all the functions you would expect in the company and they you know R and D corporate affairs communications legal marketing all that uh, they were asked to do some pre reads as you would expect uh, to, to, and they also had a homework assignment that before they came is that each of them was offered was was assigned one of six different companies, um, companies that were either Cargill's competitors or partners or customers, and asked them to research their sustainability uh, programs and initiatives and commitments and achievements, and were expected to show up sort of being able to talk about that. And that was part of the program. Um, and um, 
you know, it was just interesting that uh, they not only did it, but they were pretty motivated by that. And so uh, I'm going to play a few clips uh, in the next few minutes. And the first one is from Jill Colling, the the sustainability lead for Cargill Protein, who really organized this event. Uh, and I asked her, you know, what did the group take away from the research on competitors and others? I think people were actually people were really surprised by the companies they research and how much they're doing around sustainability and their communications around it. You know, had someone say, wow, I'm embarrassed to say I have never looked at our what our customers are doing. I was really surprised to see how sophisticated they are. You know, we need to to go further in our efforts. We need to step up our game, essentially, is what people walked out of. I think another key takeaway was people were like, the communication part of this is so important. So one of the companies we looked at, people said their, you know, sustainability report was 136 pages long. They're like, wow, who would ever really read that? There's got to be a better way to do this. So on the one hand, we admire how much they're doing. On the other hand, like, got to be a better way, especially the salespeople, like how can we communicate this better to our customers um, in a more succinct way? So I think the communications was a big, like how sophisticated others are in this space was a big takeaway, but also the belief that we could, we can do better in this space if we put our minds to it. So how did it work, Joel? Like what was the feedback? Well, first of all, the, the, the actual, uh, event was consisted primarily of 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 group discussions and they it went through this process where they divided the the group up into tables or six tables um uh, 40 people so you can you know six or seven people at a table and um the first uh, the first table they uh well for this, first of all they before this they played a bunch of videos that they had made uh, videos of some NGOs talking about Cargill and sustainability some uh, a man on the street video that they did in Chicago downtown Chicago uh, you know sort of asking people what they think about sustainability and and just sort of getting people's head in the game but then they did these tabletop exercises where they first time they divided people up by the company that they were assigned to research and to sit and talk about what they had learned about that company and just talk about that. The second round, they reshuffled the groups and they were now sitting where you had uh, supply, uh, sort of a cross section of the company at each table. So you had supply chain people and customer facing people and finance people all sitting together. And this time they had to talk about uh, what they, some of brainstorming some of the ideas that uh, how Cargill could, could create sustainability solutions, just sort of you know, blank slate, big picture thinking. And and that's not an easy thing to do because Cargill has like 50 business units there in everything having to do with not just food and ag and, you know, animal feed and crop protection, but biofuels and, and data services and all kinds of things. And then the third group, they they actually got them by more sort of function, like the customer facing people together at one table, the supply chain and procurement people at another. And, and they gave them a bunch of things that Cargill could do in, on cards and asked them to shuffle those cards and put them in one of three piles, either things that were critical to do, things that were nice to do, or a third pile just called no way. And, and so that was sort of – they came out of that with uh, – with a fair amount of consensus about things they wanted to do. So how do you turn, how do they turn this, this meeting, this summit into 
strategy and action. I love, by the way, I loved that no way, <laughs> that no way pile. That, that was like, yeah, because I think a lot of people are afraid to say, we can't do this. We're not going to go there. People don't like to make that decision. And I loved that they did. So, but how do they turn this into action? Well, so they all had, were given notebooks and they all had to keep notes during this event. And then all those notebooks went back to Jill and, and her team. It, she, she was uh, just recently staffed up. There's, it's a five person team now. Uh, and out of that is notebooks and, and a lot of other work that Jill Colling and her team had done. They, they um, came up with a strategy. They took it to management and got it blessed. And now they're sort of rolling it out and socializing it in the company and in the process of creating action plans around this. You know, and, and I think that's interesting. But in addition to the action plans that will turn into specific kinds of, of initiatives, what was really interesting is, you know, so what came out of this in terms of the, the awareness that the people who attended and 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 how they in turn become influential. So I, I talked to Chuck Gitkin, who's the uh, chief marketing officer uh, for Cargill Protein, and asked him, you know, sort of what what were the outcomes here, and 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 what really impressed him about this. And here's what he had to say: One of the interesting surprises was how ready for action everybody was. So um, we weren't quite ready for action. Part of the summit was to help develop our strategies and start to benchmark and set targets and start to start to plan the work. And we had people coming into the room so ready for this this mission that they were expecting us almost to talk about every how we're going to do everything and what we're going to do rather than starting to fashion that with them. So so we had to to, to make sure and and have people you know realize that we're just getting started. Now, in the sustainability space for years, but as far as our, our strategic effort in protein, this was just getting started, and we needed to acclimate people to that. So, so that was a little bit of a surprise. And then I think, you know, a pleasant surprise was to a person and to a function, everybody was bought into this, and, you know, it's very easy for certain functions to sit in a room and be a little defensive or be parochial and and really just, you know, think about their space and, and the negative impact that things might have on them. We didn't have that. We had people who um, uh, who really wanted to figure out how to do this and, and bring the best intentions. Were there any unpleasant surprises? I would say no. I mean, you know, we, all, we always want to move faster and, and get more done. And this is such an, an important and urgent charge for us that, you know, I'd always like to go faster and further. But as far as the event, I can't tell you that I, I came, away, came away with any negative takeaways. Yeah. One of the very nice outcomes of this is that I think our our customer facing people know that we're open for business on sustainability and that we want to work with our customers. And so coming out of this workshop, it's really accelerated Jill's and her team's engagement um, with some of our strategic and core customers, um, some of whom are well down the road on sustainability. You know, McDonald's, Walmart, companies like that um, have very strong sustainability plans and we want to be good partners to them. And we have other companies who come to us who are just starting to figure it out, saying, we're not really sure what we're doing. Can you help us? And, and I think we can add value there, too. So, so that's another nice outcome from the, from the workshop. So does that mean that Cargill is going to be making more noise about this in, publicly than it has in the past? Absolutely. In the next three to six months, you'll see us come forward with more of an identity in this space. You'll see us come forward and be very vocal about our strategies and how we want to work with our customers and other other stakeholders. 
and then and then report out to uh, to our stakeholders, whether it's media or customers or industry or communities, government, et cetera, we will start to, to be highly engaged in that way. Um, and that's really not been our posture in the past. Do you have any concerns about that, as we've seen in the past, com- some companies that, that stick their neck up, get hammered down by activists or others? Is that at all something you're thinking about? Yeah, it absolutely is. We, we need to be really careful about it. Um, first of all, we, we can't promise anything that we can't deliver on. Second, we have to bring our best intentions forward. And, and third, we have to set expectations. And I think, you know, the, the way... I've been talking about it, and, and I think others are, are, are feeling good about this too. If we say that we're going to do our best, it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be fast enough for everyone, but if we can always do better every day in whatever area of sustainability we're talking about, then I would hope people would want to join us in that journey. There are always going to be people who are going to be anti-beef or who are going to be anti-big food or, or whatever. And, you know, if those people, you know, want to throw rocks at our parade, then it's a shame because we're trying to do the right thing and feed millions of people every day. And I think that can be done. Um, But, yeah, there will always be detractors, and we're just going to have to, you know, keep our heads down and realize that we're we're talking to everybody else. We're talking to the vast majority of people who will look at this logically and realize here's a company that's going to invite people in to help craft where we go, as long as everybody realizes that you can't do everything and you can't do it all at once. So, you know, is this sort of meeting unique to Cargill? Have you heard of others doing this or should they? Well, a lot of companies are trying to figure out, as I said, this uh, crack this employee engagement nut. Uh, And I haven't heard of anything just like this, which is why I thought it was worth writing about it and writing about it in depth. Uh, but you know everybody's trying to f- figure this out, and so there's uh, a lot of different efforts. And when we get together, as we are this week here in Colorado at our Green Biz Executive Network meetings, inevitably employee engagement stories come to the fore. Um, how do you do it? Here's what we did, and here's how we went around. But but I like this because it was an internal only sustainability summit that was uh, you know sort of starting at the ground floor in terms of the company's. Um, commitment. And, uh, and I think, you know, time will tell how much this really, you know, gets, gets uh, a snowball rolling at Cargill on sustainability, although they were already down a number of paths here. And so this wasn't, they weren't starting at zero. But I really liked what they did. And I think it's, it's a really interesting model for other companies to look at in terms of how do you make sustainability part of everyone's job. I'll just tell you one quick story that it's just an old story for me, but years ago I was um, visiting a a large printing company, Quad Graphics in in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. uh, And I got a tour by the then sustainability lead, uh, John Imes, still a good friend of mine. um, And, uh, and he was just a bunch of really impressive things and that they were doing. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, they had, um, I think, 8,000 or 8,200 employees uh, working at this, at this massive plant, one of the largest printing plants in the United States. At the end of the day, I said, John, this is really, really impressive. By the way, how many people do you have working on sustainability at Quad Graphics? And without missing a beat, he said, 8,200. And I said, bingo, that's the right answer. And I think that's what... Cargill is trying to do here. Just get everybody in. Make it part of everyone's job.
In late August, the Department of Energy delivered a much-anticipated report mandated by Secretary Rick Perry back in April. His stated goal was to assess the reliability and resilience of the U.S. electric grid to make sure that the system is, quote, technologically advanced, resilient, and reliable, end quote. The fear in some circles has been that the administration will use the findings to prop up subsidies or policies that could encourage more coal and nuclear power generation at the expense of so-called variable renewable energy alternatives like solar and wind. We asked longtime energy advisor Amory Lovins, co-founder and chief scientist of Rocky Mountain Institute, to help us dissect the 187-page analysis. Here are excerpts of that interview. So to jump into the meat of the report, one of the, th- the things that really struck me was that the analysis primarily ignored distributed generating assets and, and energy storage. Um, what does that what does the uncertainty of federal policy really pretend for that sector? Well, the report misses a lot. It, it leaves out all of the dispatchable renewables. It ignores the benefits of the variable renewables. So, for example, there is a matrix in the report that counts as a virtue for coal and nuclear that they have fuel on hand but leave that blank for renewables without noticing that they don't need fuel. That's why they don't have fuel on hand. But they are indeed excellent performers in episodes like the polar vortex where they have helped keep the lights on. So when you look at this, this analysis, I mean, what is the, what does it mean? <laughs> what, what is it, what is its purpose? Is it, is it, um, is it setting us up for something to change or something to be uh, something to be in the way of, of the renewable movement? From the Secretary's initial announcement, one could reasonably infer that he wanted it to show that renewables were making the grid uh, less reliable and that, that this threatened the national security and therefore that the government might have to uh, override state or regional grid choices in order to uh, favor the resources he likes. The report didn't end up saying that because it would have been contrary to fact and the department's professional staff uh, was able, despite the editorial headwinds to make clear what the basic facts are. So I think the, uh, the report probably will not portend radical shifts in how the grid is run, and it couldn't anyway because the Secretary of Energy lacks the statutory authority and the evidentiary record he would need to do that. Since the whole balance of professional opinion, including the Department of Energy, its national labs, and and, uh, the regional grids, is contrary to the thesis that we need so-called baseload plants to keep the grid reliable, uh, this would be quite difficult to defend. 
so and and also there are of course internal contradictions in the policy uh coal and nuclear are being promoted together as fuel on hand resources against gas which means largely fracking another administration favorite and then coal and nuclear are also at each other's throats uh, as direct the most direct competitors renewables and efficiency are beating all of them we're allowed to compete and there are also very strong constituencies in the private sector and the states for defending present arrangements. The reason we have regional power pools and competitive wholesale markets is that Congress told the operators to organize themselves that way, and they did very successfully. Market exit for uh, many existing coal and nuclear plants is a perfectly rational consequence of market competition. That's what was supposed to happen. And, of course, efforts to reverse it would run squarely into very bipartisan constituencies. You also have on the conservative side of the political ledger uh, strong advocates of free markets, competition, innovation, and states' rights, uh, all of whom would be expected to oppose what amounts to a return to central energy planning to pick winners. But I thought the most important uh, failing of the report was it omitted a coherent, positive vision of the more resilient reliable, affordable grid that proper uh, scaling up of efficiency, timely use, and distributed and renewable supply all permeated with information can together create. That fits the Secretary's declared purpose, but I think it's the opposite of his agenda. So. The the professional staff, I thought, uh, did present fact-based views more successfully than the secretary might have hoped. They emphasized the, the ample and increasing adequacy of generating resources in every region. They said renewables are not correlated with coal and nuclear retirements and are not endangering resource adequacy or ancillary services or diversity or reliability. Those were important things to get straight. Relatively even-handed in discussing the job and macroeconomic implications of the shifts in the grid, although you have to collect parts of the report that are a bit scattered on that. And basically, the recommendations were rather anodyne. They, they said that regulators should study and pay attention to the issues everybody knows exist in a changing grid. It doesn't recommend, at least in any recognizable form, any dramatic policy moves, although there's still some coded language that might hint that the secretary still wants to meddle in markets.
As we said earlier in the program, we're meeting this week at the Green Biz Executive Network at uh, the headquarters of Danone Wave, which is in Broomfield, Colorado, and uh, actually sitting here in the Innovation Center a few miles away in what I said was Louisville, but I understand is Louisville, Colorado, talking to Deanna Bratter, who is the Director of Sustainable Development Strategy at Danone Wave. Um, first of all, Deanna, you're now six months into this merger uh, between, you came from the White Wave side of this uh, with, with Danone. Um, How's it going, the integration, from a sustainability perspective? Great. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. So the integration's going great. It's been a very busy six months. And we are really fortunate that we have brought together two companies who really have similar missions. On the White Wave side, the vision and mission of the company was changing the way the world eats for the better. And Danone is really focused on bringing health through food to as many people as possible. So when it comes to sustainability, both the social and environmental impacts and opportunities, we have two like-minded companies who are really striving to create change. And I think it's uh, going to be really magnificent when it all comes together. I think people are sort of wondering what happens when two companies come together, uh, leaders in this case. Uh, how hard is it to, to become one from a sustainability uh, mission and, and uh, achievement perspective? Yeah, well, there's no shortage of great work to be done, and there is a very long list of projects and focus areas. So what we're doing right now is really focusing on understanding what both of the legacy organizations are doing and then what the global ambition is. And we're going through robust materiality assessment with a variety of internal and external stakeholders, and we're really trying to get smart around what our approach should be globally and then based here in North America, where we want to focus in and where we want to lead as Danone Wave. So one of the things that happened at the merger, as I said earlier, is that Danone Wave is the largest public benefit corporation in the United States, I guess. What does that mean to you? What's the significance of that to the company? I think it's really significant because sustainability within a large organization works when your people rally behind it and when everyone believes that you are contributing to a clear mission and really being authentic about what you do. And by incorporating as a public benefit corporation, we've set the standard. We've told our the world at large, our shareholders and our employees that we are going to be a company who not only delivers value back to our shareholders, but also does it in a way that considers people, the planet, and society at large. And I think it's really meaningful to set your baseline with an intention that you're holding yourselves accountable to. So how does that change what you do? Are you able to make decisions that you weren't able to make before? So it has a few pieces. One is an advisory board that specifically we are working with to help define what this mission looks like and how we function and operate. And that is chaired by the CEO of Patagonia, Rose Macario, and really leveraging their expertise and their vision on how this can work and be an integral part of who we are and how we operate. Another piece is uh, really defining what that public benefit means. And we are using the B Corp certification as a tool and a piece of that to help define where we need to focus, where our gaps are, where our strengths are, and what our future looks like. So the uh, Public Benefit Corporation is the legal status that got you the, in effect, the permission with the shareholders to consider other things besides financial return. Why go for B Corp? What's driving that for that, uh, I guess, certification? 
Well, Danone globally has made a commitment with B Lab um, and B Corp to pursue B Corp at uh, the highest levels of the organization. And we really see at Danone Wave that B Corp is a way and a tool for us to, to as I said, identify what those opportunities are, um, but also to benchmark and demonstrate success. Uh, as a public benefit corporation, um, we have the autonomy to define what that means. As a B Corp, B Lab and other companies, your cohorts define what that means, define what best practices and what success is. And we think there's a ton of value in working with peers to understand that and having a tool where we can measure success and improvement over time. Is this something that the B Corp status or even the public benefit uh, corporation status that you are communicating to the outside world, certainly to the to the food customer, for example? Or who knows? Obviously, you talked about employees and engaging them and inspiring them. Uh, is this a more public communication? With the Public Benefit Corporation, it's who we are. And so we are proudly putting that in our communications um, and talking about that. With B Corp, we are just beginning the process. So um, we are working through our B Impact Assessment um, and working towards our certification. So we want to be really clear and really fair that we are in pursuit of this certification. Uh, but it is a robust certification, and it's going to take some work to get there. We hope that once we are certified uh, and that we will be able to leverage this and help make B Corp more broadly known um, and really build the equity with both customers and consumers. Talk a little bit about what it takes to be certified as a B Corp. Yes, so the assessment with B Corp is quite robust. It focuses on five areas, including social areas around workers, community, environment, as well as your governance and ethics, and the value that your product or business brings to the world. And the assessment, you have the potential to earn up to 200 points, and you need 80 points to be certified. You then are audited on your submission, and you recertify every two years. So is this something that's in process, that you will be expect to be a B Corp by a certain period of time, or is, is it still unknown? Yes, so we've made a commitment that we will pursue B Corp certification by 2020, but we do believe it's a valuable tool in assessing where we are and where we want to go, so we have begun the process, but it's too early to say where we'll come out in terms of timing. Well, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation, hearing how it goes, and hope for the best uh, when you actually meet that someday. Thanks so much, Deanna Bradder, who's Director of Sustainable Development Strategy at Danone Wave. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organizations, the stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments and questions and ideas. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce and GreenBiz managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.